from Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in today. You are listening to Rated LGBT Radio, and I am Rob Watson. Um, we have a really wonderful show today. Uh, we're veering away from the political, which we've been focusing on the last few uh, episodes on, and um, moving to the artistic. Uh, when bad things happen, uh, both in small ways and big ways, um, you know, and we're feeling kind of the pain of things, um, there are extraordinary people who step forward and find a way to help us find beauty and capture snippets of the experience. Um, I remember when um, Donald Trump was elected, uh, there was a gentleman who in the, uh, the walls of the New York subway started a project where people were posting, putting up post-it notes um, on their feelings about the election and um, he took pictures of those and put them in a book, and it kind of captured a really um, deep humanity and expression from from all of us, uh, or from a lot of us, uh, about that experience of that election. Um, and we are now four years hence out of that, um, so we're in a new age. But um, we are in the age of the pandemic, and um, we have another painful shared experience and so um, one artist has stepped forward again to help capture a snippet of that and and capture our shared humanity Um, that artist's name that photographer's name is AJ Stetson and he is here waiting on deck with us today Um, AJ has been a photographer since childhood he has um, photograph <laughs> taken photos of um, quite a, a diverse um, group of people from the Cirque du Soleil to ballet dancers to sea lion pups, um, beautiful nature, um, all sorts of expressions. And um, because of the experience he had, and we'll get into that with him in a minute, um, he decided to do portraits of New Yorkers wearing their COVID masks. And that has become an exhibition called Masked NYC Witness to Our Time. Um, it has drawn accolades from the public in, in big ways. It's been on online displays uh, with different art galleries and, and is in line to be on display from several more. Uh, but it's also gotten an accolade from um, Governor Cuomo himself, who said, uh, quote, Stetson beautifully captures the diversity and strength of New Yorkers during this challenging year. Um, I have to say, looking at the photography, which obviously, hello, we're a blog, and we're uh, an audio blog, and so we can't show you the pictures. But looking at those pictures, um, and I can't even explain this, but I actually – was tearing up um, their, they bring up such emotion. And um, I, like I said, I 
can't tell you why, but that is what they do. So um, in a few minutes, we're going to meet the man behind those pictures and find out how they came into being. Um, but first, I want to welcome to the show my um, uh, renowned co-host, journalist, Brody Levesque. Brody, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, good day, good morning, and hello to all of our listeners around the globe. We thank you for tuning in to radio, uh, our little radio show here, and uh, we appreciate uh, you subscribing to the podcast. So, and, uh, yeah, so, let's uh, talk. So, Brody, <laughs> yeah, the president has been busy. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> yeah. Instagram running. Day one, hour one. Um, tell us, what has Minute that um, good man been doing? Uh, we are on day eight of the Biden administration. Uh, the president of the United States has, lifted the ban on transgender military service. He has reopened the Obamacare health care exchanges. He has reversed Trump administration policies on climate. The president has reopened relations with our allies. And most importantly, the president has done a full court press to address the COVID crisis and pandemic, which, of course, has killed over 400,000 Americans in basically one year's time. Uh, A number that I note with great sadness um, has has been more than were killed during the Second World War. Total combat deaths from 1941 until the end of the war in 45. So it's really sad. Um, He's moving ahead with the nation's governors uh, to implement rapid distribution of all of the Moderna and the Pfizer uh, vaccines. He's coordinating closely with the Centers for Disease Control, as well as Dr. Fauci at NIH uh, and the infectious diseases folks. Uh, the president has also made a full court press uh, to start uh, turning things around economically. He submitted his America plan package to uh Congress, and at this time, uh, we're waiting on congressional action. Um, I think the most important thing that the president has done, more than anything else, he's been presidential. You know, it's it's such a relief to, you know, for me as a political reporter and as a senior journalist, to have daily briefings back. Uh, and a shout out here to Jen uh, Saki, uh, who I knew when she was spokes black at the State Department. It's great to see her at the podium. Um, and, and it's good to hear messaging that is clear, concise, articulate, with direction, and most importantly of all, from the president on down, not a single fabrication why any of it in evidence. It's just so nice. Uh, and, of course, this has been one of those months where everything's been tipsy-topsy-turvy from – Insurrection to impeachment to an inauguration to, yeah, it's just it's an incredible period of time uh, in American history, not only for the American people, but also for journalists like myself, uh, who are covering not only just the administration, but all the other encompassing aspects uh, of what's going on. Uh, yesterday, another footnote uh, to how much this president has done, uh, Pete Buttigieg was voted out of committee to the 
full Senate floor with the recommendation that he get, uh, is confirmed uh, as the next Secretary of Transportation. This is a historic first. Um, Secretary Buttigieg will be the first openly gay cabinet official uh, in U.S. history, the same way that the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, is the first black, South Asian, and woman to occupy her right. office. So well, this he, is an administration of first, you know? Yeah, technically, though, Pete Buttigieg is the first confirmed um, cabinet member who is LGBT. Um, Trump had one, but he was just acting, correct? Well, you know, in the in the annals of the Beltway and how Washington looks at it, okay, Buttigieg will be the first openly gay cabinet official. That right. He's confirmed right. by the U.S. Senate. Okay, who matters? The other person shall remain nameless. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> if we're going to do cancel culture, okie dokie. Yeah, um, so, I will. On that particular yep. individual, <laughs> I, I will definitely do cancel culture. You know. The big, the big eraser. Okay. Um, so, uh, folks, you just have to Google it if you want to find out more. Um, so, let's get, talk for a second about the impeachment stuff, because um, mm-hmm. again, in their wonderful. Um, Circular and um, prone to be um, amnesiatic um, way, the Republicans who um, didn't want to rush to have a trial for Donald Trump for impeachment before he left office, albeit, yes, that would have been a very quick timetable, um, are now coming out saying it is now unconstitutional to impeach um, a former president. Um, Correct. 40, what's the you on that of one? Them, as a matter of fact, <laughs> 45 uh, Senate Republicans uh, led by minority leader Chuck uh, Mitch McConnell and uh, Rand Paul of Kentucky um, uh, said that it wasn't constitutional at all. Five voted with the Democratic majority and said it was. Uh, basically, so, at the let, end let of the day, I'll be, yeah. Yeah, I want, I want to just cut to the chase on this one. Um, what what the frick are they thinking? I mean, do they really seriously want Donald Trump as their candidate in 2024? Is that what they really hope? Because that's all they're setting up. Um, essentially, our understanding is that because so many people voted for Trump, and it was a significant number since they didn't take that bad of a beating in Senate races, since they gained house seats, they honestly believe that they will be moving into the majority again, uh, as far as the white house goes in 2024 and certainly in the midterms in 2022. And there is actually a danger of that. Um, The Republican party is today exactly what Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona warned over 50 years ago. Senator Goldwater cautioned that if the white nationalistic Christian movement uh, was to attach itself parasitically to the Republican Party, that it would not only be the end of the party, but that it would likely cause severe and serious repercussions for the country as a whole. Turns out the Senator wasn't wrong. We saw the entry of this into the Republican politics with Reagan's election, it was codified in a party politics in 1994 with Newt Gingrich 
and it it just has gotten progressively worse. They don't care at the end of the day. Um, and it's gotten to the point where the toxicity level is so high uh, that it, it doesn't appear that anybody's paying any attention, but they actually are. This is a concerted effort by the Republicans. They truly believe that they should be able to regain power in the next two cycles, and they truly believe that they can mitigate any actions by the Democrats. Um, the insurrection of the insurrection on January 6, coupled with a warning that came from the Department of Homeland Security yesterday, a national bulletin warning to all U.S. law enforcement that domestic terrorism was now a threat to national security. This is the first time ever. Right. Normally you get those threats from externals. These are internal. So you have two events here. You've got what happened on the 6th at the Capitol building. You have that from DHS, and it should be a caution to Americans. Okay, this isn't even remotely over with. This is a problem that is going to have to be addressed, and it's going to get uglier before it gets better. And that's a sad, sad truth. And when you consider that Trump is still viable, and these Republicans will continue to support him because Trump is their poster child. Trump is the person that they throw out there, okay, as glorious leader to get everybody like the idiots that stormed the Capitol building on the 6th to rally behind to put Republicans back in office to do what it is Republicans want to do. At the end of the day, they are the most self-destructive force, you know, in American politics. And what are you going to do? I think it's just going to take time to work its way out. And a lot also is going to depend on just how overall effective this administration and this Congress is to be able to affect positive enough changes to mitigate the damages that have been wrought by, you know, the Christian far right uh, with their Republican cohorts. And it's really a problem. It's a really, really serious problem. Uh, and these people right. are still holding to that. Well, yeah. And it's, it's a, it's a, a multi-pronged sword because um, although I guess the sword doesn't have prongs, but anyway, um, the, uh, the, the issue is, is that there are things that Trump did that angered and, and frustrated the progressive part of the country, um, like the trans ban and things like that, that unfortunately um, emboldened the conservative and more prejudicial part of the country. So, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's a... I guess my point is is that those who are interested in, in the country moving forward need to be vigilant. That that we can't sit back and kind of go, yay, we you know got the Senate barely, um, yay, we solved the House of, of Representatives barely, and we have the White House, yay for that. Now we can sit back because um, that that pendulum swings back. And if we're not strong in the next, um, you know, midterms, and especially strong in the next election, um, we could be back to Trump- Trumpville. And, well, um, not only that, that would be awful. yeah, not only that. Well, not only that, Rob, but I think, and and this is my last reflection on this. When I was growing up, we had 
the situation that evolved after the Second War uh, that became known as the Cold War. And it was called that because there was no actual shooting, but there were several skirmishes along the way, and there was a complete and total utter deterioration of relations between the three superpowers, particularly the United States uh, and the Soviet Union. Um, what we have now in the United States is an essential civil war, only it's cold, and there hasn't been any real open shooting except for incidences like what we've seen in American cities across the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement, civil unrest in places like Portland, but most importantly with what happened on January the 6th at the U.S. Capitol building. People need right. to understand that this country is engaged in a very, very serious civil war, and it's not over. It's not even remotely close, and it is you know, something that people really do need to pay attention to because it is dangerous enough that it could go from a cold war to hot war at the drop of a speech from a corrupt man, as we saw on January 6th. Right. Well, let's let's um, shift gears here because we we're going to shift to the other thing that is literally plaguing our country, and that is the pandemic. Um, you know that you you I think you remarked on the numbers at the top of the show um, are are horrifying and and detrimental. Um, the one thing that has happened in our country is that for many of us we have come together, although they're like in the politics, there is those factions that are, um, you know, the anti-maskers, the anti-vaccine um, people and all that. Um, uh, but, but in the large part, a lot of us have a shared experience. And our guest today has um, given face to that, and literally, um, by an incredible um, art exhibition and photography work um, that is his latest expression. And so um, with that, I want to welcome to the show uh, A.J. Stetson. A.J., thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Rob, so much for having me. Thank you, Brody. Thank Bye. you, Brody. Uh, Our pleasure. So, A.J., I want to take you back before, before um, COVID, before a lot of things, back to your very beginning um, of your interest in photographer. And I hear that started with a crocodile. Can you tell us what that was about? <laughs> Indeed, it did. Uh, I had a film camera and was on vacation. My family, we had gone to Florida to visit my grandparents. And they lived in Manatee County near Tampa, but in a, you know, oh, an area where there was a lot of you know, swampland and canals. And um, I'm an early riser most of the time. And I got up early one morning before anyone else and took my camera and went exploring. Um, I happened to see along the banks of a canal, a crocodile. And I thought, Ooh, wow. Fantastic. Um, I, I don't now, have how, any how images of a crocodile yet. How I was probably nine or 10. <laughs> I think I was nine. Yeah. <laughs> nine so, years old. So, um, so uh, you know, so you saw uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> saw this crocodile, and the first thing I did was, being really still, I got down on the ground um, to try and capture it from its perspective. Um, so, so, you know, to, to make it look 
powerful and heroic and to, to get as low as I could to make it seem as large as I could. But I got down and I realized, oh boy, I'm not nearly close enough. Um, in order to have the crocodile kind of fill the frame more. It was really small, the frame. I needed it to be bigger. So I, I started inching slowly, slowly forward. And I was getting closer and closer to the shot that I wanted, the, the composition, the perspective. And I heard someone say, honey, AJ, honey. And it was my mom's voice. And she said, back away from the crocodile. And I said, I, I, almost, I almost have the shot. I almost, I'm, I'm almost there. I'm, you know, we're both like whisper, stage whispering loudly. And so I inched just a little bit closer and snapped maybe, I think two frames, got it. And I was like, okay, slowly getting back. Um, it wasn't until afterwards that my, my mother was absolutely terrified. Um, but she, she kept it cool until I was out of range of, I was lucky that it was, you know, kind of a warm, sultry morning. The crocodile had uh, thankfully <laughs> said, or wasn't interested in me. Um, yeah. So that, that, uh, kind of started my, my yearning to do whatever it takes to get in the right place in the right moment to capture, uh, a hopefully exceptional image. Okay. So. So from the perspective of somebody who admires your work, I'm, I'm in a total awe. Um, from the perspective of a dad of two teen boys, I am absolutely horrified. <laughs> I am right there I with your mom. I take full responsibility, and my mother was mortified as well and terrified. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, on that one, I'm kind of camp mom. So, uh, but wow, okay. So, uh, yeah, your, your dedication right there, right at the get-go. Um, but, but now you, you have a lot more artistic expression because you are also a singer, correct? I, I am a singer, yeah. Um, opera singing, and uh, I still am singing solos and liturgical in, um, in a local church, actually an historic church uh, that celebrated its 200th anniversary maybe five years ago uh, on Broadway and 10th Street. And so most Sundays that I'm in New York City, I will sing there, either solos or with the choir or both. Yeah. Okay, that, uh, first of all, I love New York City, so um, I love everything about New York City, and I'm, I'm a big Sex in the City fan, and Real Housewives of New York <laughs> fan, and all that, so it's just, I, I love all that, so the idea of singing in New York in, in a cathedral sounds like heaven, although... Uh, truth be known, if I tried it, they would they would throw me out because I cannot sing at all. But, <laughs> so um, that yeah. th there's that. I feel really fortunate. But, it, it's a yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> but but in your experience, you caught COVID. So tell us what happened. Yeah. Um, so one Sunday, March eighth, actually, um, I went to sing as usual and. Pre-COVID, we were gathered together at this church on Broadway and 10th Street. And it is one of, I believe, seven buildings that's on the Manhattan Registry to be preserved at any cost. In other words, if the church were, for whatever unfortunate reason, to go bankrupt, the city would step in and preserve it because it's filled with it, the architectural importance. It was uh, designed by James Fenwick, who... That was his first major project. And then his next major project was St. Patrick's Cathedral by Rockefeller Center. Uh, and the two have, while 
St. Patrick's Cathedral is larger, similar similarities in structure and design. It's, it's a beautiful neo-Gothic um, small cathedral space and the, the stained glass windows, historic, beautiful. So I went there on March 8th of 2020 last year as, as I normally do whenever I happen to still be in New York and not traveling. And we sang, uh, we sang in, sing in quite a few languages, Latin, uh, Italian, French, um, German, sometimes Spanish, and even English. Um, but yeah, so we, we sang there <laughs> and we were rehearsing and uh, then did the service, probably maybe two, less than two and a half hours total. Um, and two days later, I started coming down with flu-like symptoms, flu-like initially, it quickly got much worse, but uh, fever, high fever, chills, body, severe aches. Uh, and I, I found out um, about a day later that six other people who I'd been singing in the same area, maybe a you know, 15 by 20 something foot area, um, came down with symptoms. And we later, now at that time, testing was not readily available. So it was ex extremely challenging to get tested. In fact, I spent nine consecutive days when I felt up to it on the phone with the city, New York City Health and Hospitals to try and get quality, to get um, permission. And I ended up getting permission from five doctors consecutive, like one after another, until finally the city approved me to, to go to Bellevue Hospital. It's, it's outdoor uh, it was like the penultimate scene from E.T. when everyone's in white hazmat suits Whoa. and tents everywhere and, uh, you know, completely covered. And, and I eventually did um, get uh, was given permission to be able to get a test. Uh, but at the time, I, I didn't know that. And um, so, yeah, I just just got knocked out. And curiously, uh, the, the, the singers and the organist and director who happened to be on the other side of the chancel, um, maybe a, a good another 25 plus feet away, they did not end up coming down um, with COVID. But those of us who were in close proximity, I think virtually all of us oh. did. Yeah. And what, what, what was going through your mind and your, I mean, your fears and emotions as you realized you had COVID? Uh, um, a, a lot of, uncertainty I, you know we'd been hearing about and reading about it wasn't wasn't certain but I was feeling okay I mean I was feeling awful but I wasn't feeling uh like I, I guess I didn't feel the, the the weight of what might possibly happen um until oh this there, it, it came in waves there were so many different it attacked various parts of my body and the first you know it was awful to be shivering and sweating and uh, the, the first few days that, that flew like symptoms. But then um, it, that, that part of it seemed to get better. But then when I started having difficulty breathing, that's when it started to get concerning. I've thankfully never had asthma. Um, I've had bronchitis, but never had any you know, serious breathing issues. And then about a week, eight days into um, this, the beginning of the symptoms, uh, it's, my breathing became increasingly labored and every inhalation it felt like I was breathing through like a, a, a wet woolen blanket. Um, and that's when I started to get concerned. And so this is eight, nine days. And then I got approved for testing nine days in, got, uh, spoke to Dr. Kianko, extraordinary, 
uh, humane doctor and, you know, both on top of her game, but also humble enough to admit that at that time they were still learning. They didn't know all the, couldn't answer all the questions that I had, but she did give me a prescription for albuterol, which I attempted to have filled uh, via my pharmacy by calling it in. It, it didn't happen. There was a problem with the pharmacies. Yeah. Ultimately a, a week later, I still hadn't received it by mail. Um, and thankfully by that time, about two weeks in my breathing started to improve. I felt less, um, it wasn't congestion even. It was just an impeding uh, force that was not allowing me to inhale properly or fully. Um, yeah, so the, the, the two or three days when that was getting, was that, when that was worsening, that was when I was really concerned. Um, thankfully, right. I woke up one morning and it, it felt slightly less bad and scary than it had uh, the night before. And then slowly over the course of several days, and then it, you know, the disease worked its way in other uh, gastrointestinal issues and a whole bunch of just really awful and seemingly unrelated symptoms in multiple systems of my body. My tinnitus is still worse today than it was prior to this. Um, but yeah, thankfully, I was I, what, what, what was on ongoing symptoms have you have you do you still feel like the after effects of having had it? For several months, I had what felt like heart palpitations um, for no uh, reason that I could perceive. Sitting, lying down, my heart would just start beating much, much, much faster. Uh, and then it was just on its own seemed to slow down. It wasn't related to physical activity. Uh, so that was really concerning. And then it would squeeze like, I, I don't think I've had angina, but so the palpitations and the squeezing really concerned me. Um, I ended up eventually speaking to a nurse who kind of put me at ease. This was a few months later when I finally was able to um, speak with the nurse about this. Uh, but I've, I started doing something when I recovered. So I was in my, my studio, my room, my library living space within the building, the house that I live in, which is a co cooperative residence of about 22 people of all ages and backgrounds. And they t brought food and water to me. Uh, but I was in my, you know, small living space, my small room for 25 days. When I got out, I, um, having had a few opportunities to climb up the, the rooftop, I live in a building that was built in 1846. Um, but we were really, so that I, we made sure that I wouldn't pass this on to any of my housemates, a few of, right. of whom were older. One is in her mid eighties actually. And thankfully, knock on wood, we, we didn't, we haven't spread it within the house. Uh, we've been observing strict protocols, wearing masks and you know, cleaning, sanitizing. Uh, but so after recovering and coming out, I started doing something I had never done, even though I've been a New Yorker since graduating from college, I started bicycling. And that kind of gave me, in the absence of being able to, of gym, being able to attend gyms, that was my cardio exercise. And so slowly over the course of a few months, the, the heart palpitations and squeezing seemed to go away. And since then, tinnitus, this kind of like high metallic pitch, has been kind of a constant companion. As it was before, it's just now worse, amplified. Um, right. But I'm alive. Right. And so, then, yeah, grateful and then, for that. And then after, after that experience, um, you were, as we all were, a witness to the George Floyd event, 
mm-hmm. and that had a huge mm-hmm. impact on you. Um, um, mm-hmm. You know, what, how did that enter your consciousness at that time then? And how did that affect what you were to do later with your art? Uh, it, it, it was terrifying, mortifying. The, the, the pressing of one's breath until one's life was squeezed out of him. I mean, that, that yeah, the, the, the horror of that still you know, I think resonates for so many around the world. Um, I, I, in concert with having felt so constricted during the time when I was almost a month when I was in my room, um, I, I felt this urge, this compulsion to engage safely wearing masks, staying socially distanced, but to engage with my fellow New Yorkers um, and to respond to this, um, to, to, to step up, to, to speak out, to, um, yeah, to, to express how this was unacceptable and individuals needed to be held accountable and things needed to change fundamentally, foundationally, systemically. Um, and so before, um, George Floyd was murdered, uh, but after I had come out of quarantine, um, I asked my housemates if I might photograph the mast and I used a telephoto prime lens so that I could stay at least eight to 10 feet apart, Mm -hmm. but still capture what I was going for, which was an intimate, close portrait of their faces and wearing a mask, of course. Uh, and in fact, that was the one common denominator until today uh, since the pandemic has begun that I, um, since coming out of quarantine, uh, I will photograph in public spaces people with masks if they allow me to, if I ask them and they say yes. I have not been photographing people who are not wearing masks in public places. Um, but I just kind of, I, it just got got in me that that was going to be my response with my camera and lens um, in that time. And then being a new bicyclist in New York, I asked friends around the city, uptown, downtown, Brooklyn, East New York. I, I was so excited to explore this new exhilarating mode of transportation before I'd been too scared, honestly. I mean, I, I've known a- athletic, young, fantastically vital uh, and capable physically people who were put in a coma or killed as a result of bicycling accidents. But I, I, I got a motorcycle helmet, um, you know, within maybe days or a week of coming out of quarantine. And I, uh, I still wear that helmet every day when I'm biking. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I went and photographed friends again, socially distanced, uh, whether it's on the sidewalk in their backyards. Uh, one of them has have a, a little garden and, um, yeah, so that that's what how I was responding, and then George Floyd was murdered, and then the rallies, marches, protests began, and I I attended those like my life depended on it, and uh, asked as many people as I could uh, if I might photograph them, and uh, I'd say the majority, maybe eighty percent, said yes, um, and when they said no, they often said but thank you for asking, you know, it was, um, so that just became something I, I just needed to do. It's not, you know, as a, a street photographer, 
does not need to ask for permission um, in this country anyway. Um, you know, as long as people are in a public place, one can photograph them. But I just wanted to make that as part of the ethos of my experience. And given given the the uh, the, the the weight of circumstances and um, racism and identification and people being um, you know sometimes targeted for simply who they were. Uh, I wanted to share that uh, that aspect of respect. All right. About how many faces in this project did you photograph? I'm sure you don't have the exact number, but roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Well over a thousand at this point, maybe 1,200 or more. Yeah. yeah. So the 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 photographs themselves, like I said at the beginning of the the show, the ones that I've seen, and and I've actually heard of people looking at them and having this reaction too. So many of us look at them and we're literally just looking at faces, but we're moved to tears um, because of just something in that experience. Um, you obviously you're looking at all of them through your lens and you know, their, their face, except their eyes are covered. Um, what is, what is kind of a, a, a universal thing that you are seeing in these eyes, these thousands of eyes um, that you're taking away from it. What, what, what are you taking from the humanity you're looking at? The, the universal thing is the exquisite range of expression and humanity from joy to grief, from exhilaration uh, sometimes surprise to anger or, or fear. I mean, it is such, such a broad range. And uh, sometimes I'd have simply seconds. I mean, I would ask someone or sometimes uh, if it were you know, a loud march and I were, uh, were apart from them, I, might, I would point to my camera and then point to them and give the okay or not okay sign. And they would either nod yes or shake their head no. And if they nodded yes, um, then... I would you know, take a moment and it, yeah. So I, I guess um, the, the, <laughs> the universality is the, the, that spectacular r- range of humanity. Um, I mean, as I was both heartened by what you and Brody were speaking about as far as Biden's um, executive actions and hit, hit the ground running within the first hour. And, and in contrast with, um, the sobering nature of um, the people who have chosen to make this a political issue, people who, uh, for a multitude of reasons, are anti-maskers. Now, as I said, I haven't been photographing any anti-maskers. I only photograph in this past year those who are wearing a mask. Uh, and yet there is still this, this, this beautiful um, symphony of, uh, a sea, a, 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 this galactic ocean of uh, f- f- so many different reactions from the police officers, uh, a, a black woman police officer who was tickled that I uh, would ask her. She said, yes, many police officers said no, but all, many also did, in fact, say yes. I, I spent much of the spring and summer, um, because it was so hot, uh, shirtless. I uh, often, actually, I think almost always, as long as it wasn't too chilly or cold, 
would be shirtless and, and put the letters <clears throat> for Black Lives Matter just large in uh, Sharpie on my chest, BLM, um, as I would bike around the city. Uh, and sometimes that uh, got a certain amount of attention. And I remember this, this black police woman, police officer, uh, was seemed just thrilled. And then another um, white male police officer, uh, not so thrilled, but did agree to be photographed. And there's a, a stoic um, severity in the expression. So, huh. yeah, I guess not one specific uh, emotion or affect, but just a, a, a spectacular range of, the, of them. Yeah, and the one of the focus, obviously, in, in the photography is the masks themselves, and I would imagine the, mm. the different creativity people have taken with them. Uh, what are some of the creative masks that have stood out for you? Uh, um, a young boy, and I would always, also, if I were going to, before photographing any children, I would make sure that I'd asked the um, the parents who happened to be nearby. Uh, a boy near Macy's was gathering for um, to make anti-racist signs before March, and he had on a superhero mask with Hulk and Thor and Iron Man and Spider-Man. It was so cool. Uh, and um, Sylvia Weinstock, a legendary wedding cake maker that I saw from a distance wearing these large, dark, circular glasses, often associated with Iris Apfel. She had on kind of a, a plainish white mask, but um, a, a, a um, LGBTQ pride flag and trans rights flag uh, morphed together in the shape of a heart that um, the sum total of her glasses, the mask, and that queer pride heart sticker on top of that was, was quite lovely. And, and this um, woman with uh, beautiful orange-red hair and freckles with a, a green peacock mask, or um, so many uh, 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 black um, trans women's masks that looked like something out of Carmen with a veil and frills hanging from it. Um, a Vietnam veteran uh, from Venezuela or a Venezuelan-American Vietnam veteran uh, was wearing a dark blue felt hat and a dark blue mask with um, beautiful embroidered uh, designs in blues and reds and whites that, um, yeah, it's just, just such, again, uh, like the expressions of vast range of creativity. Um, a, a black woman, a young black woman who had an orange and black shawl and um, her hair was colored orange, and she was wearing this beautiful, bright orange mask. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, when, th- those would often stand out to me, you know, some, sometimes a block or two away, and so I would try to make my way over to them and ask for permission. And, uh, but sometimes also people just wearing the you know, standard issue in, in 95 or the light blue and white masks, um, which is what Bruce Gilden, Magnum photographer, was wearing when... Um, I encountered him on a march on the way from Union Square up 6th Avenue and on the way to Trump Tower. Um, yeah, and if I had a few moments, I would ask uh, them if they felt comfortable closing their eyes and recalling some experiences that they've had since the beginning of the pandemic. And depending on the moment and the individual, I might ask if they had uh, any moments of joy they recalled or surprises or silver linings, or might ask them if I felt they might be comfortable with, 
with recalling a moment of sadness or grief or frustration. Um, I didn't want to direct them into a specific expression, but allow them right. to feel comfortable, if, if they did, um, to share a moment of vulnerability with me. And that um, is what I'm so grateful for when, when someone does give me a moment of their time and shares a moment of that vulnerability, because I think it's in those moments when people allow themselves to be present and that presence is what hopefully may be shared in that single still image. Right. Well, what was some of the most touching moments that some of them shared with you that, that stood out that you won't forget? Oof, um, the, the, there's been an ex, several ex, four exhibitions of four foot tall by two and a half feet wide banners of these portraits. And at the moment, there are 90 of these banners on the Upper West Side along 76th Street, Columbus Avenue, and 77th Street, kind of diagonally across from the Museum of Natural History. Um, but in September and October, when the exhibition was downtown on East 15th Street, um, along the, the cast iron gate of the Friends Meeting House, I would have two days a week um, in the late afternoon, early evening, when I put up signs and said, come by for a free portrait. And I would, and I have sent JPEGs uh, of the image, the finished edited image to everyone who wanted me to. And so there were a bunch of people that I was photographing and in my peripheral vision, I saw a woman and it was quite warm, even hot out. Um, she was wearing a, a turtleneck and a, a winter hat and carrying several bags, moving slowly, Looked like she might be having a tough time. Um, she put the bags down slowly, and she just waited patiently. And I finished the next person that I was with the next person I was photographing, and looked at her. And she had her hand on her upper sternum, and she put it up, and she said, "Me next." And I said, "Yes, I'm AJ. May I photograph you?" And she said, "Hi, I'm Lily. I'm homeless." Mm. And um, so I put the lens up. Mm. And, um, and with, with more quiet, unwavering intensity, she looked into the lens more than anyone else uh, before or since this has begun, uh, without blinking, looked straight into the camera. And I paused, and I took a few moments and then a few shots, and she began crying. And I put the camera down and... And she, I said, thank you, Lily. And she said, thank you for making me feel like a person. Mm. And that uh, kind of um, was the most potent example of someone expressing, expressing gratitude for, for being seen that I've, I've witnessed. Uh, someone who may not always be recognized, may sometimes be more often ignored. Um, yeah, that was one of the most moving um, moments that I've had. Yeah, no, I, that's, uh, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. I, yeah, with, I mean, these connections that you've made, I mean, with the, you know, looking people in the eyes and, and, and kind of the, the, the shared experience, um, what, what do you see the, 
you know, like every bad thing, you know, when things happen, they're, they're sort of amoral. Um, and, and there's a good side and a bad side to it. What, what do you feel like is a positive effect on the humans you've, you've experienced having to wear a mask? What have we gotten out of this mm. that is a positive? Uh, it seems to me a kind of a shared camaraderie that we're in this together. Um, we're, this is not something that we are doing because we get a kick from it. Uh, there are a few people, a handful of people who have told me that they actually prefer the experience of being masked. But for the most part, um, most everyone I know, that doesn't, we don't like doing this. We're doing it because it is the uh, respectful thing to do to help inadvertently kill our mothers and anyone else by <laughs> passing along the illness. Uh, so, so we're kind of, we're in, in this crappy situation, not just crappy, this tragic situation um, together. And uh, for those who have uh, expressed their creativity through finding something that, that, um, that shares part of themselves, whether it's, you know, a child with his teenage mutant Ninja Turtle mask or an, um, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg mask or, um, you know, Black Lives Matter masks or, um, yeah, that, that moment of stepping up to the challenge together and, uh, and doing it with, with grace and creativity and artistry and humor, um, I, I was just reading about um, a Harvard astrophysicist who just published a book, which is not, uh, which many of his colleagues are not don't agree with, that an asteroid that kind of came into and out of our solar system might actually be the first um, true instance of some kind of extraterrestrial life that it might be, be not just a, um, a, a single conglomerate of, of dust and elements, but rather um, evidence of alien life. And I make, right. well, I love right. ast astrophysics and astrophotography. I'm making no comments on that. However, one of the key components, he said, is that by, by being open to the possibility that that, that may be the case, it, it gives us a better perspective from which to to move forward. In other words, if if we were to agree that the common enemy is not uh, other human beings specifically, red versus blue, Republicans versus Democrats, mm -hmm. but rather in this case, a, a microscopic, invisible to the human eye uh, virus that does horrifying, colossal damage. Um, if we could just see that that is our common enemy rather than the others that, that for those of whom uh, are on the anti-mask side of the equation, we're not trying to strip them of their liberties. We are simply trying to protect each other so that we can get through this. I heard sometime last year was in the summer that if everyone everywhere were to have worn a mask for two weeks, it would have right. been over. The, the virus would right. simply have stopped its trajectory. Uh, so I, I guess it's a, lo a long roundabout way of your, answering your question. Uh, and, and we've seen speculative science fiction movies in which a common 
enemy, an alien enemy, uh, unites humanity. And so in some ways, that's kind of what, um, for those of us who've been wearing masks, it has done. We're, we're united together. We're doing this, this uncomfortable, awkward, odd thing to try to protect each other and to get to the other side where we have a life in which we can, again, begin to share our full expressions, our full facial expressions, and to be closer to each other physically. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's brilliant. And actually that, that, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, <laughs> that, that's pretty profound. I want to give Brody a chance to get in here. I've been, I've been a little bit of a pig. So <laughs> uh, Brody, is there anything you wanted to get in on this conversation? Oh, no, I mean, I'm good. You guys are, uh, uh AJ talked to us a little bit about the poster project, the reaction from, New Yorkers to the poster project. The thing has been incredibly popular. It's drawn the attention of several museums there in the city. It's drawn the attention of the governor of the state of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Um, what was your inspiration to take what you were doing and literally at your cost print out? And these are not just small little eight and a half by 11 posters, folks. These things are like. The t- they're almost the size of the posters you see as adverts, uh, what we used to call one sheets for motion pictures and theaters, and they mm-hmm. are filled with the uh, with a lot of the uh, of the shots that AJ's been taken. Um, so let's talk about transitioning from, you know, doing the shooting to now being mm-hmm. a publisher and, quite frankly, a uh, a street artist. Mm. Um, I live with. Um, a number of artists, one of whom is, whom is a human rights artist. His name is Todd Drake. And when I first started showing him the images, he wanted to see them printed. And so I got uh, 11 by 14s and he was just enthralled and moved by them. And so he said, these need to be seen. All the museums, all the gallery, everything is closed. We need to find some way to share these with people in a COVID safe way outdoors. And so he, um, had the idea to collaborate with the Friends Meeting House Net. And oops. sorry about that. Oh, uh, no so <laughs> he he um uh he encouraged me to see if we could print these larger and so I investigated that and we engaged in conversations with um the meeting house next door and they agreed to have these um, on their historic meeting house fence. Um, so I had 90 of them printed at four feet tall uh, so that the eyes would be enormous and present and at eye level when we were walk- one was walking by on the sidewalk. Um, and from September 9th through the second week of October, every morning at sunrise, I installed them along this fence, along uh, two blocks, 15th Street, and along Rutherford Place up to 16th Street. And I remember the first time when we were doing kind of a, a, a trial run. It was maybe 6.30 to 7 in the morning. Um, and this young black man was getting off, um, a nurse at the hospital a few blocks away was getting off his uh, shift and gave me this kind of fist in the air. Yo, man, these are awesome. Go for it. And it was just, I just put one up maybe two or three minutes ago. So it was almost an instant response. And then a woman coming out, walking her dog said, 
oh, the, my Lord, these, this is so powerful. And I, I, I was not expecting any, I, I started capturing these images because I was, I was feeling so constricted and, and scared and frustrated at being cooped up. Um, and I just needed to do something with imagery and photographically, but I, I was not anticipating um, printing them in huge fashion and putting them outside. But as soon as we started doing this, the, um, the neighborhood lit up and whole families would come by and the children, would, uh, the, the parents would say like, Oh, my kids are absolutely loving these. And these are our favorites. There's a, a young woman named Madison. I photographed, she was wearing a, a, a pink cowgirl hat with black lives matter on it and wearing a sign. And she just decked out all in pinks. Um, uh, yeah. So the, the engagement in a time when, um, when people couldn't, uh, engage and access art in the ways that you're used to going to museums or galleries, or, um, having it out for free in this case, sunrise to sunset, um, uh, on the sidewalk was, um, a really, <laughs> a powerful experience for me and seeing people's reactions and, and then contacting those I could, I, I, as I mentioned, always got permission to photograph, I also always tried to get the contact information of the subject. Uh, sometimes wasn't always successful in getting uh, responses from emails or Instagram DMs. If you're out there and you have, you know, uh, check your DMs, you might have something. From me. Um, but that's uh, a, yeah, that's it's, amazing. It's, yeah, AJ, I hate to cut you off, but we're we're down to our oh, final two minutes, and okay. I wanted to get in. Okay. Where can people see these now? Where where can they go? Um, are they exhibited online? Yes, if you go to ajstetson.com, they're there, and you'll see information about the exhibitions. Currently, they're, as I mentioned, on the Upper West Side. Uh, there are at least two exhibitions in the works and coming, and maybe several more that are still kind of in deliberations, um, but definitely two coming. And, yeah, ajstetson.com is where uh, the information will be and the images themselves, too. Well, this has been awesome. You are awesome. Thank you for for <laughs> this. I think this is going to be. I think this is going to, in in retrospect, will be a historic contribution to this this point in our history. And you've captured it for us, uh, for posterity. And I think I think it's absolutely stunning and wonderful. Um, and your work is just beautiful. Um, so thank you, thank, thank you, you for being you. Thank you for joining us today. I want to thank Brody for his work, um, not only on this show, but what he does as a journalist, keeping us informed and um, uh, keeping our world honest around us. And I want to thank you, our listeners. We appreciate you very, very much. Please encourage your friends, family, and uh, everyone around you to join us every week. We will be back here again next week with another new show and, uh, we're pleased to do so and pleased to be here. Um, in the meantime, please be safe, be artistic, be progressive, reach out to others, send love, um, do your part in this world. Um, it is absolutely important. And uh, so Brody and myself, we will see you again here. Actually, we won't see you, but you'll hear us and we'll hear you um, in our hearts and minds next week, same place, same time. Um, have a good week. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.